Hello, you're listening to MWA, Muggles with Attitude podcast. I'm Alice Sullivan. I'm Mike Sparkman. And I'm Jeff Lake. And today is a very special episode of MWA as we discuss Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, the movie, which came out in 2001. And the interesting thing about that is at this point, I think five of the first Harry Potter books had been released so there were still two more to go. So when they were the directors, the writers, everybody except for J.K. Rowling did not know what the ultimate direction was going to be. So, so I guess she didn't. She didn't reveal any of her future plans to any of the production. She, apparently, she didn't reveal it to anyone. But I was reading she did um, insert herself in at certain points throughout the creative process to make sure that something wasn't going to happen that would directly contradict something that she had been planning to do. And I know that she actually did tell Alan Rickman some uh, spoiler information that we're not going to be revealing here, but things that she thought it was important for him to know in order to accurately play his character. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, So what did y'all think of the movie? uh, It was really long for a kid's movie. Yeah, So so two and a half hours, like, that's long, but I, I mean... In the modern modern day, movies feel like they tend to be a little bit longer. They they range to two and a half hours pretty regularly. But even now, I think kids' movies tend to be shorter. And back in 2001, this was like, this is pretty long for a movie, right? When did Titanic come out? Because I remember when Titanic came out, everybody was like freaking out because it was so long. Titanic would have been, let's see. I want to say 97. Yeah, that sounds about okay, right. Okay, so only a few years before, but that wasn't even a kid's movie. Right. And yeah. that, that was, how long was Titanic? Two, and a, two hours? I think it was three hours. Three hours? Yeah. Okay. I just remember it was unusually long because movies before that were usually about 90 minutes. I remember when I first saw this movie uh, thinking that they had like done some, made some weird decisions about what they would, what they cut and what they did, what they, uh, what they included. Because obviously whenever you're making a, a book into a movie, you can't include anything. It just doesn't make sense to do so. Right. Um, and I, I still feel that way. I, f- I feel like they, they jumped around a lot and still managed to make a movie that felt really long. <laughs> yeah. True. True. Um, was this your first time seeing the movie, Jeff? I think I'm 70% sure I've seen it before. Uh-huh. <laughs> Either that or I've just heard that music on loop at Disney World or something. Because it's like, like a lot of the things seem really familiar to me. Yes. Uh, I, I, I remember I saw this movie when it first came out in theaters. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I didn't particularly care for it at the time. Yeah. And I was, at the time I was like immersed in Harry Potter. I really liked it. You know, I was like a big fan at the time. Right. They follow the, the narrative pretty well. I mean, like, the, the introduction, for example, of the, the three characters. I mean, Dumbledore doesn't spring from nowhere, but McGonagall's, McGonagall's a cat and then appears. And, and Hagrid certainly lands in his giant motorcycle, which was pretty great. I was going to say, that first scene, the first few scenes, was very faithful to the book. Definitely. Yeah. Which we know, having just read the book weeks ago, right? Mm-hmm. However, Dumbledore was significantly less flamboyantly dressed. I was, I was a little disappointed. Yeah, wasn't he supposed to have, like... Purple high-heeled boots. No, he had, he had like a bright, like I think it was a bright purple cloak or something yeah. like that, and like yeah, high-heeled boots. But no, I wonder why they why they toned him down. That's a good question. I mean, they. I feel like the Dumbledore that they presented was a little bit more muted and subdued than the Dumbledore in the books. But I don't know. This is this movie came out right smack dab in the middle of the great color toning shift in in movies where they discovered that they could make movies completely gray if they wanted to, no matter how much color is in the real world. Yeah. And there was about five years where every movie was freaking gray. Like, what are some other e- Lord examples? of the Rings. 
The, the Lord Matrix. of the Rings movies aren't great. Matrix is very good. The Lord of the Rings movies are gray as heck. What are you talking about? They're like, it, it, it's set in like the Emerald Isle, right? The, the the other one, the Southern Emerald Isle, that is like a gorgeous heaven on earth, and mm-hmm. the movies are gray. I don't know. Hobbiton was very green. Rivendell was very green. You're, you're right. Those scenes were, were brightly colored, but yeah. that's that's sort of the point, is they, they discovered, or they developed cheap programs that could set the color tones really easily so instead of interesting yeah it's, it's actually kind of interesting the first movie that did this extensively famously was oh brother where art thou oh, remember yeah. that movie has a sepia tone i thought they did that because it takes place during isn't it kind of like during the, the yeah. dust bowl and so they, yeah. they live it to look like uh, like old pictures and a, and a few old movies of that time mm-hmm. but that's not actually what it looked like back then right they, they had the full spectrum of colors back in the 30s i thought everybody was in black and white until like the 30s or the 40s and then everything just turned to color and then they invented color yeah it was <laughs> Right in the middle of filming um, um, The Wizard of Oz, right. I think, when, is what when they, happened. Uh, when the scientists hit the giant switch. Exactly. <laughs> this movie, I felt, was pretty gray, yeah. color-wise. In fact, it, like, it, it, I, I think it, it almost makes sense to do it as like a, a way to show contrast the way Lord of the Rings does. It's, you know, Most sure. things are gray, but there's some places where it's really bright. But is there any point in this movie where it's really bright? It's just great throughout. Uh, I think yeah. the Quidditch game, the Quidditch match is pretty yes, bright. that's true. I, honestly, I would list that as my favorite scene in this movie. Yeah. That was really, you know, the graphics were kind of like, they looked like something on a last generation Xbox. Yeah. But, you know, it was, it was well shot, it was fast moving, and it was really brightly colored. I think that brings up a point, though, talking about the color. I feel like the movie couldn't decide what it was trying to be. If it was trying to be a kid's movie or if it was trying to be more... I, I feel like, and I don't know, I don't have any data about this, but this is a reaction to Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings with this giant epic movie, and they're like, holy cow, giant epic fantasy with gray color toning makes us a billion dollars. Let's do that. Hmm. And, and, you know, that's an interesting point. At this point, the books were, were very successful, so they were probably anticipating that this was going to be a huge epic yeah. movie series that was going to make them a billion dollars. Yeah, this is around the same time period that they were shooting... Both Matrix sequels, for instance, and they shot all the Lord of the Rings movies at the same time. And so they were, these movie studios were all making these giant bets on, on multi movie franchises. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, you, you talked about the, um, the Quidditch scene, uh, and it, it is very interesting, but I think it, it, it kind of showcases the, the fact that this, the, the visual effects are not actually very strong in this movie. No. And I can't, I can't remember whether, at the time, this was something that I I felt, or if it's just that, you know, at this point we're kind of spoiled, we're in, a, in, in an age where visual effects are cheap, and so every movie has brilliant visual effects. Um, but it's, it's kind of uh, jarring, especially when they're doing these these flying scenes as they're flying across the sky. It's like, not particularly, it's, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a little weird looking. Yeah, I, my, my main criticism would be the, no, I'm sorry to the animators that worked on this movie, but it, the animations were not very lifelike. Yeah. And I think that's probably because they were all just done by hand, and they probably didn't have anything near the budget of, of, of the animation budget of a, a large movie would have right now. But, for example, Jurassic Park came out eight years before, something like that. And while the texturing and the lighting eventually started to look dated in Jurassic Park, the animation of the animals stands up. Wasn't that mostly practical effects, though? Uh, it was about half and half. Yeah. <laughs> like the the T Rex was 
uh, when, it, when you're doing the really up close shots, that was all practical. Yeah. And that stuff, in my opinion, actually looks a little bit more dated than the animation in Jurassic Park. Can you give us an example from Harry Potter that you think just really stood out as a poor example of animation? Yeah, and by poor example, I just mean by my tastes. You know, I, people work really hard on this stuff, and I don't mean to to knock down what they did. I'm sure they're they did the best with our, what they had. They're not going to listen to our podcast, Jeff. It's okay to say. Okay. The scene with the troll in the bathroom stood out to me because that's actually a transition scene where Harry Potter's, they're actually filming baby Daniel Radcliffe and then he jumps on the troll's head and it converts to an animation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a 3D animation and they, they wave him around a lot so you can't see his face which is a good idea because the face is something people really notice when it's fakey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the, the animation doesn't have a lot of heft to it. It looks a little cartoony. He comes to immediate stops and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only a few seconds of screen time. So sure. If you're not watching for it you won't notice it but I was watching for it and it's really obvious. Yeah. I feel like the, the Dursleys in the movie are a little bit softballed. Like compared to the Dursleys in the book, like they are, they're they're definitely mean, but like they they cut out a lot of the abuse. I kind of think I, I feel like I had exactly the opposite reaction. Really, I thought that they, the Dursleys were kind of more casually abusive. You know, like oh Harry, you got to go back in your hole. In this one, they were screaming at him nonstop. But there were no scenes where they were even neutral towards Harry Potter. Well, yeah, but but like Vernon Dursley was, he just didn't feel very. He never felt very threatening because because. Maybe it's again that this is, they were they were definitely at some parts making a kids movie and so they wanted him to be a little bit comical. Uh, but the fact that they made him comical made him a lot less, you know, intimidating. I suppose to me. But mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Harry's still being abused. So I think they did a good job with uh, with Hagrid in this. I for some reason in my mind. I mentioned this when we did the books. Uh, I didn't realize how big Hagrid was, mm-hmm. and I thought it was because. In the movie, they they downplayed his size, but I that in that intro scene here, he was huge. Like he was, he was, he looked like he was twice the size of Dumbledore. I I was thinking about that in this movie because uh, they were clearly trying to do a lot of the forced perspective stuff, like in Lord of the Rings. Oh yeah, yeah. where you where you know there's basically two sets of actors at the various size mm-hmm. differentials. Right, but I don't think it worked that well. And it varies from scene to scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I feel like that wasn't really consistent because you're right. We saw some scenes from the back, especially in like Diagon Alley mm-hmm. when he looked huge. But I was also wondering though, because Daniel Radcliffe is not tall at all. I think he's like five six. So when he was eleven, he could have been like I don't know three feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> Might be. I mean, yeah. Interestingly, I read the stand-in for Hagrid is a rugby player who is six foot ten. Six oh. foot ten, wow. Yeah. It's still not as big as Hagrid in the True. In right. the books. But it's easier to shoot someone who's six foot ten as ten feet tall, I suppose. Yeah. Than however yeah. tall the actual. Well they, they definitely Robbie bulked Coltrane. him up, put him in a big coat, and gave him a giant hairpiece, you know? Yeah. yeah. So you said while we were watching the movie, Alice, that the you thought the music was a little overbearing? It was. I like the score a lot. I think it's really distinctive. I like John Williams and what he does, and I think I mean if you hear that theme, you're going to immediately associate it. It's very distinctive. But I feel like they overdid it. I thought the music was really loud and overly distracting at a lot of points. Like I said, I think it made it seem more childish to me mm-hmm. in a way. Like it was just a kid's movie. They weren't trying to go for anything deeper there. What did you think? Yeah, it was... Well, we now, we're recording this podcast in the in a hellscape of cinematic scores, right? The Marvel Cinematic Universe has taken over the movie world, and they just don't really care much about scores. Yeah. 
Uh, at least not at the high level. I'm sure the people that worked on the scores worked really hard on them. <laughs> <laughs> In case you're listening to our podcast. Yeah. But none of them have any memorable scores. And so this was, to me, a nice throwback to the time closer to Jurassic Park or Star Wars when they would have these big... Okay, John Williams, John Williams, John Williams. Yeah. So when, when John Williams had these big scores. <laughs> yeah, well, they would, they would have these big scores, and they would hit them really hard, and it was like an, a really obvious part of the, the movie process. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't do scores that were meant to fall into the background. They did scores that were meant to tell you how to feel. Yeah. Um, and they leaned really hard on the theme in this movie. Like, they had that, 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 uh, like that, that kind of... Uh, is that you call it a theme, right? The yeah. the part of the score that's do, like a, do, do, right, do, and they just, they lean do. on that like throughout the entire movie constantly. Yeah, I feel like they kind of overdo the little magical sounds too. Yeah, the the the, the tinkling. Uh, yeah, it's percussive. Yeah, tinkling. it feels like maybe they realized they'd made kind of a, a Harry Potter that was a little bit too grimdark. Not that it was grimdark, just that it was uh, a little bit gray toned, and there was a little uh, there was some more serious violence than there was in mm-hmm. the books. And so they may have done a pass at the end to, with the music and the sound effects and to, you know, lighten the tone. Yeah. yeah. They also insert like a lot of, I would say unnecessary slapstick at random points. Mm-hmm. I feel like, uh, there are a lot of places where they just put in these random, like, Oh, this thing falls over or, Oh, this thing, you know, explodes in this guy's face. Ha ha ha. You know, and it's just like, they like did, right. it, it felt really out of place. There's one guy who just, that's all he did is he had several scenes of stuff blowing up in his face. Seamus Finnegan. Yeah. Which in the, in Oh, the, Irish. Oh yeah. Blowing <laughs> up. Not cool. How? Not cool. Chris Columbus. Not cool. It's a weird decision because Neville Longbottom is the obvious choice for the heel in all these cases where things blow up in his face. Cause he's in the books. He's notoriously like, yeah, poor at spellcasting, but uh, for some reason they decided Seamus Finnegan needed things blown up in his face. It feels the Irish guy a little bit like a movie made by committee, where the pub the the publisher really wanted to probably have the giant epic fantasy series that they could run year after year for a long time and make a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. But the the source material is, of course, this really kidsy kind of fairy tale story. And I'm sure that the I'm sure everybody involved was was pulling a different direction. Yeah. And, you know, other movies made by committee tend to be a lot worse than this one was. This was not that bad. It wasn't cohesive. There wasn't a clear sense of direction. I don't think at all. And interestingly, Jay, there they were considering a bunch of different um, directors for the movie, and J.K. Rowling's choice was Terry Gilliam. Whoa! Which would have been amazing. That would have been crazy. Yeah, Monty Python does Harry Potter. Wow. Yeah, Terry Gilliam has done some really weird movies. I think it would have worked. I, no, I, th- I think it would have been great. It would have worked. I, none of his movies have been huge hits, you know? Yeah, but it doesn't have to be huge. Like, it's well, Harry Potter. It Terry brings Potter its own does. audience. What the studio wants is, mm. you know, make a billion dollars. Well, yeah. If look, they're look, trying to make something that's going to be like a you know billion dollar franchise, maybe <laughs> Terry Gilliam. But, but I, I agree. I think that would have been a, a very interesting movie and probably a lot more enjoyable. I think a good comparison for this movie is the Hobbit movies. Because that's the same type of deal where they take a story that's basically for kids and they try and turn it into an epic fantasy series. And this is much more successful than the Hobbit movies. I think that's a great analogy. I was really disappointed by the Hobbit movies. Yeah. I think it's kind of in the same way. It just doesn't quite work. Yeah. They, shoe- they shoehorned a lot of mess into the Hobbit movies. And I, I, I don't think they did as much of that in this book. I mean, I, I talk about the, the random stuff they inserted that, didn't, that felt out of place, but... 
Generally, they kind of kept to the yeah kept to the overarching story. They right? kept it to you know one movie. Yeah, the Hobbit <laughs> the Hobbit movies are a True. steaming pile of junk, but yeah. Yeah, I wonder if it. You know, this is the diagnosis, right? Of why it's why it is the way it is. I wonder if they were copying the tone of the books that were coming out contemporary with the movie, but using the story from the book that came out earlier. Because, as you guys well know, the the books started out pretty childish mm-hmm. and and sort of grew up with the characters and with the reading audience. I don't so, know. Maybe. So maybe they were like using book four level of seriousness for book one story. It's possible. I'm, I imagine it's very difficult to pull that all together when you know that there's a much anticipated conclusion coming up, but you have no idea what it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think another thing, too, is the acting, uh, just the young child stars. I think all three of them got much, much better actors as they got older. I mean, how much can you expect from 11-year-olds yeah. who had literally no professional acting experience before that? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, generally... I mean, there are obvious exceptions. There, there are some really uh, fantastic child actors, uh, but generally, you, it's it's a lot more notable. It's more notable because child actors generally are not very good. So, having an entire movie where all the stars are children, and it's supposed to be like not just a, a lame kids movie. It's supposed to be something kind of big and epic. Yeah, it's probably nearly impossible, right? I mean, f- trying to find you know four or five. Really fantastic child actors might be just impossible, yeah. Yeah, perhaps. I do think, and I I do think that as they got older, they became considerably more talented. Oh, for sure. Yeah. They, they, they took some acting lessons or something. Yeah. They, well, just, they've been doing it for a long time. That's right? a good point. Their entire lives. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, the way they did that, because... Um, I know that some of the actors, some of the problems they had uh, when they were going to film these movies is they knew that they were going to have to be seven consecutive years in that take place in this one uh, storyline. And it was um, a challenge for them trying to figure out how they were going to film these movies with these kids as they grew up. So they were just nonstop filming for seven years. Yeah, yeah there was just never a break, which has got to be an interesting way to, to experience your childhood. Yeah, and you know... When you think about it, the directors changed. Some of the other actors changed. The kids were the only continuity in their experience. Yeah. Most of them stay the same. There's only a few notable swaps. Mm-hmm. Like I think a Crab and Goyle, one of them or maybe both of them were swapped out in later movies because one of them, I think the guy, the actor who played Crab got arrested <laughs> oh, for like beating no. up some people in a park or something. All right. Kind of, I mean, it kind of gives them a little bit more credit. Yeah, I, I guess. They should have kept it. I mean, that was... <laughs> but, yeah, they kept character. a lot of them. They kept all the Weasleys. <laughs> they kept a lot of the uh, tertiary characters. Yeah. That's really cool. Do you want to talk about some of the the, the locations? Uh, I know that was something we talked about during the movie, that, like, the way that they shot things, like, or the, the way that they put together some of the sets, like Gringotts. I mean, like, that. I thought that was a pretty cool... It was a beautiful location, you know, like this, this goblin bank, you walk in and it has like this massive row of, of tellers and it's like really expansive space. I was a little disappointed that we didn't see more of Gringotts. I mean, it's a pretty quick scene in the book. There's this whole thing with him going in these mine carts and going Mm -hmm. to all these weird places. But I think, you know, I I think it's a pretty well put together spot. I think it's really cool too that so that they did film it almost exclusively in Britain, and there they there's a very hard and fast rule about only having British actors 
uh, for the most part. I know there was young one man who was who was initially offered the role of Harry Potter, but it was rescinded like literally the next day because it turned out that he was American, even though he had an Irish mother. Mm. Um, he went on to play Claude Baudelaire in the um, Lemony Snicket movies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. he could be Harry Potter. This movie did a good job of amping up the spectacle from the books, which is, that's good. That's what movies are good at. Mm-hmm. You know, a Diagon Alley in the books is described as kind of an alley, you know? Yeah. But in this, it's this crazy edifice with buildings on top of buildings, and they're all crooked because wizards don't know how to build at a right angle. <laughs> or they don't have to. I mean, you know, maybe if you're not confined by the laws of phys- physics, your buildings end up a little bit more whimsical. Mm-hmm. And the... The castle, the Hogwarts, was gigantic in the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which uh, you, you saw that there was that one shot looking upwards of the tower with all the stairways, where the tower literally goes as far as the eye can see. Yeah, that was a upwards. little bizarre to me. You can see like a mile. Yeah, it was a little <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah, but that's that's what movies are good at, right? Spectacle. Sure. And and I think they did a good job of that. They didn't make anything. Yeah, they made the dog really big. Right? <laughs> yeah, fluffy. Like, it's not enough that it's a three-headed dog. That's not cool enough. They got to make it the size of a room, right? Yeah. Well, they wanted it to be an effective threat. There were some weird choices that reminded me talking about Fluffy. So, for example, you know, Fluffy falls asleep because of music. In the book, Harry played a little, like, recorder that he'd gotten from Hagrid, a flute, whatever. And in the movie, they had it be a self-playing harp for some reason. I don't understand why they did that. There were a lot of little things like that where it seemed unnecessary. Because Harry can't talk while he's playing flute. But he doesn't need to talk. He's got. He's the main character. He's got to have all the lines. Well, how did he do it in the in the book? He managed. Yeah. I don't know. Anyway. He, he spoke eloquently with his eyes. <laughs> that must be it. Also, he probably doesn't actually play the instrument. I suppose I thought they'd have to learn the instrument. I don't know. Yeah, it's no, all right. Movie magic. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is a weird choice, and and uh, some of the things they did, like that, they rearranged the dragon stuff because the dragon was in the movie. But they just sort of said, and then they got in trouble for hanging out with Hagrid at night. Yeah. Instead of the whole thing where they were trying to ship off the dragon before anybody found out about it, and they cursed Neville the first time, which yeah. they didn't do in the movie. In the movie, they only cursed their friend Neville once. Did they, did they ever talk about the dragon actually being illegal? They don't. They don't mention that. Yeah, they don't, they don't mention why it would be a problem that Hagrid has a dragon. I mean... Other than the obvious that it's a dragon yeah. and that and the, sets things on fire. And but. the book establishes several times that this dragon is really violent and dangerous. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty funny in the book. Yeah. How Hagrid just can't see that this thing is, is a real monster. In the yeah. movie, it wasn't nearly as violent and dangerous. It didn't bite anyone. It was just like, you know. Yeah. It, so why, why even have it in the movie? Yeah. Because they had to make the point about how he had gotten the dragon egg from the mysterious guy in the pub yeah 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 i guess it was a a a pivotal enough plot point that they had to include it but they definitely left out a lot of the the interesting parts about wizard law i suppose i have to say the the weakest part to me visually was when harry was in the forbidden forest and he meets the centaur but it's not some i mean the centaur whatever but it was um the mysterious cloaked figure that was drinking the dragon's blood it looked 
awful. Yeah. It yeah. looks so bad because in the book it's so creepy because it's like slithering over the ground to get towards him, which are which I've always thought was terrifying, but it looked awful. Jeff, I think you made the remark it looked like somebody had put a cloak on a broomstick or something. Yeah, like on a clothesline, like and they were just wheeling it, a cloak away. It looked so bad. It looks like a, like an amateur Halloween decoration, like somebody yes. would build in their front yard, you it know. It was very mm-hmm. disappointing. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. And that that seems like it would have been a really easy thing to animate. Just a flowing cloak, you know? I feel like they could have done that. Uh, Especially because it's so dark already. Like this, You know, I don't know if this was a consideration, but actually flowing things are harder to animate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, they're, they're slower to render because they, they have a lot more flexibility, you know, a lot more polygons, a lot more vertices, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, hair and cloaks, flowing cloaks and jiggles on people uh, tend to be the things that are harder to animate well you can do physics simulations on them which make them look okay but if you want them to look a specific way like slithering over the ground it's really hard mm. anyway what else uh, yeah you notice i mean i don't know what animation resources they had access to in this movie but i can't think of anything else they did that had soft bodies is what we call those as opposed to rigid bodies yeah everything else was like humanoid animation even when the people were flying around with their cloaks the cloaks weren't flapping in the wind they were just sort of stuck to their bodies true mm. looks okay well yeah. it, it, it might that might be part of why it looks so unnatural when they were flying around because like they weren't they were moving but no, the nothing about them was moving while they were flying around yeah nothing on the troll was moving uh freely it was not like physically simulated or anything mm. what do you think of alan ripman and snake uh, he was probably the best part of the movie. He like like he, all of his little all of his scenes. He nailed them. They, like, yeah. his weird looks he gives everybody. Uh, it made me laugh out loud several times. He, I think he's almost too good for this role. Like he's like a serious actor, and he just like lays it in right. Him and Maggie Smith. Yeah. Oh, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Maggie yeah. Smith had. I feel like she had a lot less uh, of a part in the movie than she had in the book. She was around, but. There were, there were, I think she had maybe a handful of like really, you know, pivotal points, but Snake was like throughout it, just like laying it on there with his mm-hmm. long and lingering speech. I know, that's <laughs> just so funny the way he talks. He's a really solid Snake. Yeah. Uh, I, it's hard to imagine anybody else playing Snape. It's hard to read the books without thinking about the way he played the character. Oh, absolutely. That's one of the things I was concerned about, which is why I actually didn't see this movie until a few years after it had come out because I loved the Harry Potter series so much. I was concerned that if I watched the movies, those were the images I would, that would be replaced in my head. And that's what I would always see when I was reading the books. And that didn't actually happen except for Maggie Smith. When I think of McGonagall, I just think of Maggie Smith because she was so perfect. Yeah. But even, and, but even Snape, I don't know, Alan Rickman, I don't immediately see him when I'm reading it. I don't know why I'm able to separate them. What does your Snape look like? Uh, greasier. Yeah. <laughs> she always describes him as greasy, with not as good looking as Alan Rickman. So there are a couple minor things I wanted to point out. All right. Um, when Hermione shows up and fixes Harry Potter's glasses, yeah. I thought, and I thought Harry Potter thought that she was about to fix his eyesight. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I mean, just sort of think about the look on his face. Like, she's cast the spell of his face, and he's like, oh boy. And then, like, the tape falls off of his glasses. He's like, there, I fixed <laughs> Oh. I mean, okay. he might have, because he does, I mean, he's completely new to this world. He doesn't yeah, know. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't know. Maybe he's about to do laser eye surgery seen, on him. It, 
Hagrid, who's, who doesn't even know how to do magic, give a kid a tail. That's a good point. <laughs> and we know that wizard hospitals can heal all kinds of like weird maladies and wounds instantly, right? Right? Yeah. I mean, uh, Neville breaks his wrist and he's like fine the next day. Yeah, broken bones are immediately repaired. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, like fixing eyesight doesn't seem impossible by wizard standards, and yet Harry Potter has glasses throughout the entire series. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an affectation. <laughs> he doesn't actually need the glasses. <laughs> Just thinks they make him look smart. He's probably got imposter syndrome. I had that when I went to grad school. I was like, man, there's all these people who are way smarter than I am. So you wore glasses for the entire. So year. I wore my my old Columbia shirts for like my first two years of grad school because <laughs> I felt so insecure. <laughs> I wore all of my old teachers' college shirts just to be remind myself while I'm in class that I must have you know there must be some reason why I'm here. <laughs> so. So all, all those other people that were in your classes on their podcasts are like, you know, there was that I, asshole. I would have I felt comfortable, but there was this Columbia student, and I just was so intimidated because she went to Columbia, uh-huh. and I tried to forget it, but she. Kept <laughs> <on the shirt>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know. Uh, I think everybody feels that way. Yeah. An annoying uh, uh, omission, and I know, I think, I think you, Alice, you mentioned this while we were watching it. Uh, they cut out the the, the po- potions puzzle from the closing, which is annoying because it's actually kind of a fun puzzle. But it's also kind of weird because it it removes Snape's involvement in protecting the stone, right? Yes. Which is mm. an interesting choice because in the book, it's it's a clue that Snape might actually be on the the right side. Yeah. And then yeah, I noticed that in the book the. The kids just fasten on to Snape as the bad guy because he's a jerk to Harry Potter. Right. But everybody's constantly telling them, no, 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 he's a teacher. He works here. Right. Like, we know this guy. He's fine. Yeah. And they just won't believe it until the very end. Yeah. But speaking of Snape, I thought that the stuff with Quirrell and Snape, where they always think it's Snape doing something, but Quirrell's always there in the background, was really well done in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very but subtle, but it's there if you're looking for it. During the Quidditch scene, like, it's almost like... like if you didn't know, as we do, having read the books, mm-hmm. I would not have caught that on the first watch through. It's one of those things that is really obvious if you know what you're looking for, but it's like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's very subtle. That's real, real good editing on that. Mm-hmm. There's also in the the first scene, I think it's the sorting hat scene where Snape stares at Harry and Harry's scar hurts. Yeah. There's one shot where Quirrell is literally standing right next to Snape, but facing the other direction. <laughs> so oh, the big purple turban right next to him. Nice. <laughs> it's just one shot, but, uh, you know. Yeah. But there's no there's no reason for Quirrell to be standing next to Snape facing the other direction. Speaking of Quirrell, in the in the book it's it's a little ambiguous what happens to Quirrell at the end of <laughs> yes. at the end of the story. We know that he's he's dead, but we don't know how he dies. We I think we talked about it a little bit in our in our uh, in our coverage of the book uh, of the book and the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um that you know maybe it could have been Dumbledore who killed him. He could have died because when Voldemort left, it you know took something out of him that that killed him. But in the movie, Harry Potter explicitly and directly kills Quirrell. Like Quirrell puts his hands on Harry Potter, and his his hand starts dissolving away into dust. So Harry knows what it does when he touches Quirrell, mm-hmm. and he grabs it. He he takes his hands and grabs Quirrell's face and holds it <laughs> with until, both hands. With both hands until his face melts away. Mm-hmm. Harry Potter murders Quirrell. Yes. Mm-hmm. Like explicitly. Straight up. Yeah. And doesn't doesn't respond at all. 
He yeah. doesn't even like pass out like he does in the books until Voldemort flies around in CGI form and gets him. That was dumb. Yeah. That was really irritating to me the way they did that. I don't know, and I'm not sure why they chose to do it that way because the way the book handles it, I think, is kind of perfect. Yeah, like, and and it would have been really easy, right? I mean, if if Quirrell had come on and, and attacked Harry Potter and he had grabbed him by the face and then like you know that they both you know screaming and it goes black. And he wakes up in the hospital. I think that's an. I think that works in a movie. Yeah, mm. rather than having weird like dust with Voldemort face zooming around the room and zooming through Harry, which is what makes him pass out for some reason. Yeah, that was very weird. Well, my experience as a professional video game developer, <laughs> right, is that a really good game designer once told me that what you do is you make your their mechanics so obvious that it's like you're condescending, like you're insultingly obvious, and it's still not obvious enough. People just don't see things the same way that you see them when you're looking at it and thinking about it deeply for a long time. So I would bet that if the guy grabbed Harry and then screamed and it went black, audiences would not know what happened and they would complain about it in the cinema score reviews. What they needed was to visually show, (laughs) he flies around. I'm Voldemort. That's actually a great point. It's it's visual. It's obvious. You remember it. We remember it even though it's dumb. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that would be my argument in favor. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And Harry Potter's a murderer. A, a, a I, remorseless murderer. A remorseless murderer. I propose a drinking game uh, for this. Every time Harry Potter laughs or enjoys someone else's pain, <laughs> you take a drink. Yeah. Because it happened a lot. Yeah. I was watching for it. Yeah. And this is not something from the books at all. Like it, They don't talk about Harry delighting in someone else's suffering. No, they, they do a bit. Like do they? He really hates Dudley. Whenever yeah. something bad happens to Dudley, Harry's like... Yeah, take that pig. <laughs> he does. He does really. Uh, he's really cruel about Dudley's weight. Yeah, but in this, like, like his friend, like Ron, get, get like burns or burns a feather or something, and Harry laughs at him, and the, the other kid that keeps blowing up, Harry keeps laughing at. Him. <laughs> when when, uh, when Dudley falls through the glass and is like terrified, Harry's like looking at him and laughing as <laughs> as his parents are horrified because he's trapped inside this cage. You know, Harry's just laughing. Yeah, that's a good point. I would also add, you also have to take a drink whenever um, Daniel Radcliffe shows emotion by clenching his teeth. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, falling under the category of like poor child acting, there are some really, un, I just I would say uncomfortable or just poorly done reaction shots from Harry where he's just looking at something and it's just like... Yeah, the constant reaction shots I think was a poor choice and just him looking startled. That was a big one that happened a lot. Yeah. It's like we did not need that. So I remember you were saying you thought the sorting hat scene was a miss. It was. It was so weird. It was a weird choice to have the hat narrating to everybody. I'm trying to think how they could have done it better be to show, to indicate that what the person who's wearing the hat is hearing is just inside of their own head rather than the hat talking to the entire crowd yeah because in the book as 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 we recall it was it was an internal an internal dialogue between yeah. harry and the hat he did harry doesn't realize at first but the hat is actually he's he's thinking to himself not slytherin mm-hmm. and he's surprised because the hat in his head answers oh not slytherin okay this i think they could have done that if they'd had an extreme close-up i think yeah they could have had instead of having harry's or uh, daniel radcliffe like clearly saying to himself not slither, not slither, not slither. You know, they could have just like zoomed in on his face, had it like in his head, you know, had had that his voice saying that, and mm-hmm. then have 
the hair, the hat talking to him. I think that could have worked. Or even if he just said it much, much more quietly, I think it could have worked. But instead, the hat is declaring and monologuing about what house Harry should be in in yeah. front of this 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 onlooking audience. Yeah. When I didn't do that for anyone else, like nobody else did this happen for. Oh, you hate odd. Slytherin, do you? Think Slytherin's not good enough for you, eh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, Slytherin sure is terrible. Yeah, you, you know, if you, if you want to get ahead, but you don't care about people, you could be in Slytherin. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Slytherin's looking on like, yeah, that's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Slytherins. <laughs> this movie definitely made me feel bad for House Slytherin. Mm-hmm. Because they did almost everything right. They were jerks, but they didn't break the rules. They didn't sneak out at night and, and get in wizard duels like they're explicitly forbidden to do. Yeah. Like, not only are you generally forbidden to do that, but McGonagall specifically told them not to do that. Well, I and mean, they did it anyway. The Gryffindors. Yeah. yeah. Also, during the Quidditch match, when, uh, when in, in that first Quidditch match where, uh, I believe, yeah, it's the one where Harry's broom is being cursed, mm. Slytherin is, like, cleaning up. They're doing really well. They're... They're scoring points. They're like they're 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 using strategies that you know, like clever strategies to to yeah. to, to, to dis, you know they're eliminate. being really violent. They're eliminating the Gryffindor players, but and, that appears to be legal in the game. Yeah, I mean the, there's no there's no penalty called. I assume there's a referee somewhere. Mm-hmm. So now that we've too. actually seen it being played, does Quidditch do the Quidditch rules seem any less dumb? No, absolutely no, not. I, I, I would say dumb. exactly the opposite. I would say that in this in the movie, we only I think we only see one Quidditch match, right? Yeah. Uh, in that Quidditch match, Slytherin were clearly the better players, and they should have won that game. And then Harry just accidentally swallows the the snitch, and then the <laughs> game is over, and they win. That seems like a terrible game. Yeah. <laughs> I think our uh, our Muggle version of Quidditch makes more sense. Yeah. Yeah. But man, that that last scene where. You know, Dumbledore is about to award the House Cup to Slytherin, who, again, earned it fair and square. Yeah. And they had already decorated the hall with Slytherin's colors. Yeah. Like, the, the shot of the hall shows these banners with Slytherin, so it's not, it's not like there was like a, a... I mean... Yeah. They made it as... It's as not like they posted the score. It's not like there was a scoring period. It's like... Like, they, they had probably already celebrated, right? Yeah. They were already celebrating. They were cheering, I believe, right? Yeah. and they, when, Harry, when Dumbledore cuts them off and is like, but... <laughs> yeah, I know. And it just and as he's going through his little speech, they keep cutting back to the Slytherin kids with this look of shock and horror on their Aww. face. Uh, it's so mean. It's so mean. <laughs> it's a Dumbleburn? <laughs> Dumbleburn. Yeah, it is yeah. a Dumbleburn. And then, of course, he... Magics uses magic to change all the decorations. Yeah, yeah it's, I, it's like a nightmare. Should just replace it with a big middle finger. <laughs> yeah, I believe yeah. he uses magic to pull the Slytherin banners down from the sky and then just like whizzes all over them, <laughs> <laughs> tosses them out in the trash, and then then the double the the Gryffindor ones appear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean after that, I was ready to side with Voldemort. Yeah. <laughs> Screw these people. It was a fun little Easter egg though um, when. Harry was looking at various Quidditch trophies and things, and we found out that McGonagall had been a seeker back in her day. Yeah, that's right. I thought right. that was a fun Easter egg. I never actually caught that until you pointed it out. Um, but yeah, there's that little plaque that shows when they what they're talking about is is Harry's dad playing Quidditch, yeah. but right next to it mm-hmm. is uh, is it M M V McGonagall. I don't know what her, M- Minerva. I I yeah. I know it's Minerva. I don't know what her middle name is, but yeah. 
and her mother was a was the captain of the school Quidditch team. So okay. that's cool. So she's from a long line of Quidditch players. I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to talk about the the dining hall, the, the way they have it. They shoot that room is pretty cool. I don't know if that's worth talking about. No, it's that like, was cool. I love the I love the dining hall. That's they shot it, it is at. Is it called dining hall? What did they call it? Yeah, it was the dining hall. They okay. they shot that at Christ's Church in Oxford. It's a beautiful room, and the way that they the way that they represent it, I think, is pretty fantastical. With like the the flying candles and just like these huge expansive tables. And yeah. It's a really, I, I think those are really cool shots where they, they show that room from and kind of like a high downward angle. It just, yeah. It's really lovely. Oh, and a fun little, uh, extra there. The, um, all the, all the kids, all the kids, whenever you see them working on something in the movies, all mm-hmm. the extras, they're actually doing their homework. Oh. Yeah, they made them do their homework while That's they were so there for the up. realism. <laughs> while they were shooting. So don't have too much fun, kids. <laughs> yeah. Do your homework. Real frowns. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's. I guess if you have to do your homework somewhere, doing it on the set of a awesome Harry Potter movie is probably pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, right out. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. This wraps up our exploration of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. This is our fun, our ultimate episode. This is yes, this is our ultimate episode around <laughs> this book. So we're going to be taking a short break, but we will be back. But in the meantime, you should check out our other podcast, The Dragon Reread, which covers Robert Jordan's Wheel of Time series. Please share us on whatever platform you got us on. Please like us. Please like us in real life. We're very likable. <laughs> if you have anything you want to say, go ahead and shoot us a line at hello at mwapodcast.com. You can also contact us on Twitter. I'm Alice Sullivan. That's at Alice M. Sullivan. I'm Jeff underscore Lake on Twitter. I'm Micah Sparkman. I don't do Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. So until next time, Finite, Finite Podcast. Podcast.